Loving Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you, Lord, that it, you reveal to us there what you're doing in the world and how we can be part of it. And we pray that you would uh, inform us and move us this morning uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I came across a cartoon by Michael Lunig the other day, which uh, I think sums up many people's attitudes to Christian mission. Uh, it's going to appear on the screen, I think. There it is. Uh, as you can see, it depicts a man. He's standing on top of a mound of skulls and the debris of war. Uh, in the background, the thick black smoke rises to choke the earth and the sky. The buildings are burning. It's a desolate wasteland, uh, the wreckage of civilization. And the man is standing there. He's dressed like a barbarian. Uh, he's got blood on his boots and his hands. He has blood around his mouth. There's blood dripping from the sword, which he holds in his left hand, raised to the sky. Uh, he looks up with a vicious grin, and in his right hand, he is grasping a Bible. And as you can see, the caption reads, Onward to Mars and the Moon. In other words, it seems to be saying that the conquest of the world in the name of Christianity has ruined the place, and now we're sending probes to Mars, and it won't be long before we ruin that place too by invading it with our Christian ideas. Now, from my point of view, I find that cartoon very unfair and inaccurate. Uh, it's true, of course, that Christian missions have been tied up with uh, bad things in the past, but I would say that the authentically Christian side of those sad histories was not the problem with those stories. I was talking to someone just this week. Um, I asked whether he was religious. Uh, he said he believes in faith as something that helps people. Uh, he believes all religions are basically the same. They're about a person's faith, inspiring that person and giving them hope. Uh, but he's not sure that there's actually a God. And part of the sentiment was that if all faiths are basically the same, one religion should not force itself on all the others. I said, well, if you're not sure that there's a God, I can see why you would think that all faiths are the same. But as somebody who does believe in a God, I can tell you my faith is very different to a Muslim's or a Hindu's or a Buddhist's because my God is very different to theirs and it all starts with your view of God. We shouldn't be scared of talking about that, surely. It's a good conversation. I hope I get to talk to him again. But the sentiment of our time is, well, your faith is good for you. I'm happy for you to have it, but don't try to force it on me or anybody else. And that, of course, comes from this sentiment that in the past... Christians have imposed their values and their beliefs on innocent peoples, uh, cultural imperialism, Christian mission means taking over a place, uh, and it brings with it the implication that we are right and you are not and we know better than you. Uh, we just need to think about how we feel when missionaries knock on our door. Um, there are other groups that send out missionaries and sometimes they come to us. Uh, they want to convert us to their religion and of course, our knee-jerk reaction is, I'm fine as I am, thanks very much. Uh, I don't really want to talk uh, and have you push your religion on me. And so mission is a dirty word to many people. But the thing is that Christianity is a missionary faith. And as much of the world would rather be left alone, and as much as it would be much easier and cheaper for us just to keep to ourselves and look after ourselves, our faith is a missionary faith. And in Acts chapter 13, uh, Luke records for us the launch of God's mission into the world. 
And we see God doing three things here which show us how important mission is to him. God sends missionaries, God defends truth, and God ends exclusivism. I forgot to print an outline, but there's three rhyming words there that might help you. So first of all, God sends missionaries in the first part of the, uh, of the chapter. Global mission was not a strategy of the church to expand its market into other countries. Uh, the church is not like McDonald's or Coca-Cola. It didn't start with a corporate strategy. In the church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Luke tells us. Um, in the first century, the church needed prophets as well as teachers. It was before the New Testament was fully written, uh, before an established body of Christian teaching was there. God was still doing surprising things in the newborn church, so he gave prophets as well as teachers to that first generation church. And the Holy Spirit uh, selects two people to be sent out as missionaries, Barnabas and Saul, soon to be called Paul. It must have been hard for the Antioch church to let these two men go, because you might remember from last week, they were foundational encouragers and teachers of this uh, newborn church. But the church listens to God, lays the, its hands on them, and that is a, an expression of fellowship and support, and sends them off into the world. Uh, not just anybody should be sent for mission work. The, the Holy Spirit was very clear and specific in selecting Barnabas and Saul. God knew the right people for the job. Um, John Mark went, that, went with them as well, as we read, um, even though he wasn't ready for it yet and turned back before, after a little while. Um, and these days, the decision of going into mission and ministry for a person is not usually as sort of direct as this. It's a process of thinking and praying and talking to other people in the church and taking steps gradually into these sorts of things. But it is still good when people go into mission and ministry for them to go with a sense that they have been sent by God. The main point from this passage is that God initiates world mission. World mission was God's idea. And Paul, the missionary, becomes the main character in the book of Acts from this point on rather than Peter uh, because God sends missionaries and that's now what he's doing. So that's the first thing, <clears throat> God sends missionaries. The second thing we see God doing here is he defends the truth. And this is this interesting incident with the, the sorcerer. The new uh, missionaries sail to the island of Cyprus, which wasn't far away. They move across the island preaching in the synagogues. And this was Paul's pattern when he went to a place. He went first to the synagogue and, and spoke to the Jews. Uh, there were practical as well as theological reasons for Paul to do that. The theological reasons was, uh, were that Jesus was a Jew, of course, and he came to fulfill the promises made to the Jews. And the Jews had the old covenant, which gave way to the new covenant in Christ. And so, as Paul says to the Romans, the gospel is first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. So they were the theological reasons, but they're also practical reasons. Uh, there was already an audience in the synagogue that Paul could easily speak to straight away. There were often interested Gentiles, God-fearers, in that audience or around the edge of that audience, as well as Jews. And so he could build a bridge to the Gentiles starting at the Jewish synagogue. Well, it says that when they got to Paphos, they met a man who embodies Jewishness at its worst. He's described as a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet called Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. His other name is Elymas, the sorcerer, um, or the magician, or the fortune teller. Uh, 
and he had departed from the scriptures and gone into magic and superstition, Jewishness at its worst. It wasn't uncommon among the Jews, even though the Old Testament says they should have nothing to do with the occult, but not completely uncommon for them to mix uh, superstitious practices with their religion, if they were going off the rails, of course. The thing with magic and superstition is that those sorts of things are not really interested in truth. They're really only interested in power. It doesn't ask what's right, it just asks what works, what's going to give me an advantage. That's what magic and superstition are about. And one might wonder why the proconsul, the guy who ruled the, the island on behalf of the Roman Senate, why he would have a sorcerer as part of his entourage or a fortune teller. But again, it wasn't uncommon. They were very superstitious times and people wanted whatever advantage they could get. And if a sorcerer was going to give them an advantage and help them, then so be it. But we're told that the proconsul was an intelligent man. He wasn't just content with superstition, he was interested in answers, he was interested in truth. And so he sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. When they came, Elymas the sorcerer opposed them and he tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Why worry about truth when I can give you power? Paul's assessment of Elymas is in verse 10. Um, of chapter 13. Uh, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? So he'd perverted Judaism and now he's also trying to pervert the gospel. And so God then demonstrates that the gospel is not just a matter of truth, it is also a matter of power. Uh, verse 11, Paul says to him, Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. So Elymas the sorcerer was totally outmuscled there. He was a, a sorcerer left completely powerless uh, under God's judgment. But note what, what it was that impressed the proconsul. It wasn't just the power, it was the truth. He was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. So he was an intelligent man, not just interested in superstition and power, but also in truth. And he heard the gospel and he saw the power, and together the, God, the power and the truth of God came home to him. Where do we see that today if we don't see signs and wonders that accompany gospel preaching? If we don't see our enemies being struck blind or uh, people being converted and having their cancer cured or whatever it is as well, where do we see the power of God as well as the truth of God? Well, I would say there's a lot of evidence of the power of God that surrounds the gospel even in, a, even in our church here because the, the power of God is seen in the changed lives of his people and in the love that Christians have for one another, which in many ways is supernatural and miraculous. And it's in the faith and the hope and the joy that Christians have in the Lord. It's in the fact that they can have a relationship with God, which is real. So in the gospel, the power of God surrounds the truth of God, and that should be the visible witness of every Christian person. Look how God has changed my life. God is very much involved in the mission that he has initiated. He backs his truth with power. God sends missionaries. God defends truth. And the third thing we see here, which shows why mission is so important to God, is that God ends exclusivism. 
And this is the main bit of the passage. Now, the Jew-Gentile issue is a big issue in the New Testament, including in the book of Acts. Jew versus Gentile, how does this whole dynamic play out? And we might struggle to understand why this is such a big deal, because we don't sense how tightly wrapped up the Jews were in their exclusive identity. And of course, God birthed the gospel from that group of people. The whole vision of holiness in the Old Testament, which the Jews inherited, was about being separate in their rituals and their relationships and in their culture. It was about being different. They were the people of God and they were different. And so God's blessings were confined in this very tight circle of Judaism. And yet, while the Christian gospel was first for the Jew, it was also then for the Gentile, the non-Jew. So God needed to break open that tight circle to get the gospel out to the Gentiles. And that was going to make mission work very difficult in this first generation of missionaries. The gospel wanted to go out, but the Jewish base was holding it in. Elemas the sorcerer is the first example of that pattern. He was Jewishness at its worst, trying to stop the gospel from spreading. Well, as Paul and company, they moved north into modern-day Turkey and another city called Antioch. This is a different Antioch to the one they came from. They find Jewishness at its best in many ways but it still tries to hold the gospel in. In verse 15, Paul and Barnabas go to the synagogue and they sit in the service in the synagogue and there's the Bible reading and then they're invited to give a word of encouragement to their Jewish brethren. And Paul's message basically sets a bomb in the middle of Judaism. Luke records Paul's sermon here as a model example of how Paul preached the gospel to the Jews. And I'll summarise it very quickly for you now. Um, Verses 16 to 25, Paul describes how Israel's history has been fulfilled in the coming of the Saviour, Jesus. God had been their Saviour, God sent them saviours, especially King David, and then from David's descendants comes the Saviour, Jesus. Then in verses 26 to 37, Israel's promises have been fulfilled in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So the people of Jerusalem didn't recognise Jesus as their saviour, they execute him unjustly, but it's all unwittingly fulfilling God's prophecies. And then God raises him from the dead, which again fulfils the promise of God approving his son and not letting his holy one see decay, which were promises to David about David's greatest son. And so in Jesus, Israel now has a king who is the risen son of God, never to die again. He is here. And then in verses 38 to 41, Paul gives his appeal. Every person must now put their personal faith in Jesus to receive the blessings that he came to offer. And I think it's worth noting, if you put your eyes on verses 38 and 39, how Paul describes those blessings in this model of gospel preaching. It's popular today to say that Jesus came to live and die and rise again to bring about transformation in the world. That's what the kingdom of God is about. It's about a transformed world, so it is said. And of course, there is truth in that. But if you just go straight to that, you skip a very crucial bit. Uh, What is sometimes not spoken about in modern presentations of the gospel is personal sin and how it is dealt with by Jesus. Notice here in this model proclamation, 
how Paul drives towards an appeal for each person to have their sins dealt with, because that is where the kingdom of God starts. Uh, Verse 38, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So everything God has done in fulfilling the history and the promises of the Old Testament leads to this offer. You can have your sins forgiven through Jesus. The personal offence that you have caused to God by your life and your behaviour and your heart can be dealt with. And then Paul puts it in other terms for them. He uses the language of justification in verse 39, which means being made permanently right with God. He says to them, through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Now, with justification, a status is given to you. You are declared righteous before God, and that covers every sin that you have committed, uh, past, present, as well as future. On Judgment Day, if you're justified now, you'll also stand before God justified in the end, righteous before God. And this is really the revolutionary bit that Paul is proclaiming to the Jews, They tried to be justified by obeying the law of Moses. How do I get right with God? I obey the law of Moses as best I can and I hope that it's good enough. But Paul says elsewhere, you cannot be good enough to justify yourself. But his proclamation is anyone who believes in Jesus can be completely justified before God. And that is how I can stand before you today knowing that God holds nothing against me even though I am still a sinner. And that's how you can sit there today knowing that God holds nothing against you if you're in Christ, even though you're still a sinner. And if you're somebody who's aware of the things that you've done wrong, or at least aware of the the moral weakness that you have within you that causes you to do wrong things sometimes, or just that you're not right before God in the way that you are, If you also trust in Jesus as your saviour and your king, then you can know that God holds nothing against you. And that's the glory of of justification by faith. Or in other words, you have nothing to prove to God if you are in Christ. You do not have to improve yourself in order to earn his favour. You cannot be any more right with God than you are already if you are in Christ. Now for the Jews who were conditioned to measure themselves against the Old Testament law, this was huge, what Paul was saying. They would really struggle to come to terms with this. They might even scoff at the possibility of justification by faith. Because if it's not about the law, then it's also not about being Jewish. And that means it's also open to Gentiles to be justified through Jesus. And so Paul warns them, take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you, Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if somebody told you. In other words, Paul's saying, this, is, this might well be too much for you guys to handle. And sure enough, the response to this sermon is Jewish jealousy, but Gentile joy. Initially, the Jews are interested. They say, come back and talk to us again next Sabbath day. And so the next Sabbath rolls around and it says, the whole city came to the synagogue to hear the word of the Lord, verse 44, almost the whole city. And the Jews were filled with jealousy and turned against Paul and against the gospel. Why were they so jealous? Was it because that he was such a good preacher and no one came to hear them? No, it's that they could see their exclusivism being ended by these missionaries and their message. 
You're saying we're not special anymore. And God was using their rejection of the message to push the gospel outwards. See verse 46, Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first, since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. And this is something that had to happen. Uh, This is why the gospel had to go to the ends of the earth, verse 47. This is what the Lord has commanded us, they say. I have made you a light for for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, if you look that quote up in your Old Testament, Isaiah 49, verse 6, the whole verse actually says this. It says, it is two, he's talking to his, God is talking to his servant, the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 49, and he says, which is Jesus, and he says to him, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back the house of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And so the point is that Jesus is too great just to bless Israel. He's too great for it just to be confined within this tight circle of one people. Um, God's plan is for Jesus to light up the whole world and to be the saviour to the ends of the earth. So in verse 48, it says, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Notice the, uh, the two references to eternal life in this passage, verse 46 the unbelieving Jews rejected the message and did not consider themselves worthy of eternal life. And then in verse 48, the Gentiles, among the Gentiles, all who were appointed to eternal life believed. If you reject, it's your fault, verse 46. But if you believe, it's because God appointed you, verse 48. That's uh, something we're thinking about. And Luke's point is that God has appointed Gentiles to eternal life, not just Jews. In his eternal plan, these Gentiles had been appointed as well. And here the gospel starts to find those whom God has appointed. So the Christian gospel produces uh, Jewish jealousy but Gentile joy. And God is using that dynamic here to push the gospel outwards towards the ends of the earth. God sends missionaries, God defends truth, And God ends the exclusivism. God wants the gospel to move outwards to those among the nations whom he has appointed to eternal life. So I just want to mention three things uh, to reflect on that you might be able to remember and take away from this. The first thing is I think we ought to be reflecting on how good the gospel is. Jesus fulfills everything that God set up and promised over 1500 years of Old Testament history and prophecy Um, are fulfilled in Jesus the Saviour and his death and resurrection. And the result is that you and I can have our sins forgiven and we can be here now before God, completely justified, even though we're sinners. And that is a very unique message. There is no other religion in the world that can liberate you from your sins like that. that. That message is so amazing and good and there is no other way that we can be right with God other than through that. The gospel, to know that, is such a privilege. That's the first thing. The second thing is what God has done to get that message to you. In Acts 13, God launches the mission 
and he breaks open the exclusivism of the Jews so that the gospel is thrust out towards the Gentiles and the missionary enterprise that God is driving has taken the gospel to the ends of the earth over the next 2,000 years. And God has been using people in amazing ways to send out the power and the truth of the gospel into the world to reach all of those whom he's appointed. And he has brought it to us here in Australia in 2021 through this missionary enterprise that he launched in Acts 13. And your testimony, if you're a Christian, would be that God sent people to you to tell you the message, whether it was your Sunday school teacher or your scripture teacher or your youth leader or your parents or your ministers or, your, or some friend who brought the gospel to you. Somehow or other it got to you because God made sure that the gospel would find you because you have been appointed to eternal life. And of course, God sent people to send uh, to, to the people who were sent to us and God sent people to, to those people. And all the way back it goes to Acts chapter 13 when it, the mission was all kicked off at that point. And God's purpose was that eventually it would reach us as well as all the other people he's appointed around the world. And that's a wonderful thing, what God has done to get the message to you. And so thirdly, it's worth reflecting on how you can support God's mission. Christianity is a missionary faith because God is a missionary God and his son brings light and salvation to the ends of the earth. And so you can't, I think you can't read Acts and think, well, let's just keep it to ourselves, you know? We dare not hold the message in if God wants it to go out. We dare not create closed little Christian communities around ourselves, our own brand of exclusivism, if God is behind the enterprise of the gospel to the ends of the earth. The world may well see Christian mission as in cultural imperialism and as causing conflict and damage. And of course, it's true that Christian missions have become tied up in various evils here and there. But as unpopular as it might be, we must not give up on mission. Our message brings light and salvation. People need to hear it. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. And without him, there's only darkness and condemnation. And God wants the message to go out and to find those whom he has appointed. And so it's worth reflecting, what's your part in the mission? What is God sending you to do even today? We need to pray, certainly, and we need to give to the mission. And we need to go. Each of us needs to go in our own way, all of us, into mission and ministry, whatever that looks like for you, uh, within the church and beyond. Um, the gospel is powerful and wonderful. It's power as well as truth. Um, and we bear it into the world. So let's pray that God helps us to see the world as he sees it now. Heavenly Father, we, um, we thank you for showing us your agenda for your world and what you're doing. We thank you for launching this mission, which has now even reached to us. And we thank you that the mission bears with it a message of such hope and light and salvation uh, that it really is a great blessing and a privilege to have heard it and to know it. We pray, Lord, that you might use us even as you've sent people to us. We pray that you would send us out to play our part as well, whatever that might look like for each of us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.